friends, colleagues, and meeting makers. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Chris Davis from Carleton University. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming out. We're uh, we're excited to chat with you. Um, we've we've been uh, fans of your work. We really like what you're doing, and we're excited to learn a little bit more. And as I'm sure our guests are, or our guests, geez, you're the guest. <laughs> our audience, man, oh man, I'm struggling. Okay, anyways, um, Chris, why don't you give us uh, just kick us off with a little bit about kind of the work that you do and and where you think that we're going today? What kind of stuff do you think we'll be chatting about? Okay, sure. Um, I, I'm interested in in how people adjust to the really challenging uh, things that happen in our life. So, uh, you know, losing a job or losing a child, um, uh, spinal cord injuries, things like that, that just throw your life upside down. And, uh, and you know, there, there's a concept in, in the field called post-traumatic growth. And I've been interested in that for, for gosh, since I was in grad school at UBC way back <laughs> in the late eighties. Um, and, and, you know, how it came about this was uh, I was working with my PhD advisor, Darren Lehman, who's a prophet UBC, and uh, he had, uh, for his dissertation research before that, had done research on people who lost a family member in a car crash. And uh, so uh, I was working with him on some of those data uh, to try to understand how people were adjusting and, and what was predicting uh, people having a different, more difficult time than others. Hmm. And we started reading in the literature about this stuff about post-traumatic growth and how after these really awful events, people were saying, you know, it's not so bad. I actually got something positive out of this. I've grown as a person. And so we were kind of curious about how that worked or what was actually going on. Because, you know, for me, if that happened to me, losing a spouse or a child, I'd be devastated. I don't think I'd be able to say, um, you know, it's made me a better person in some way. Yet, you know, Mm -hmm. we look at what was coming out of literature at that time, people were saying that. And it was, uh, you know, we're scratching our heads. So, you know, our first study was was going through uh, the interviews that Darren had done in his dissertation for this study of, of um, sudden unexpected loss from motor vehicle accidents and, you know, looking to see are people saying these sorts of things. And sure enough, we found uh, quite a few people saying that that you know, positive things had come out of this, this tragedy. Yeah. Um, one of the, the shocking things was... Um, you know, we, we thought, okay, well, we've, you know, some people are saying things like, uh, you know, I grew in my faith, or I became closer to family members, or uh, I'm a stronger person. And so we, you know, we took those anecdotal self-report statements and tried to compare it to those people who, who didn't say those things um, on any sort of uh, questionnaires that we had in, in that study. So measures of self-esteem, for example, or religiosity. And we found that, you know what? compared to people who never said that, there was no difference. Uh, there's no, we didn't, you know, you say that, you know, you're closer to God or you're closer to your family members, or you've got a new direction in your life, new purpose, but we didn't see any sort of independent evidence of that. Hmm. So it got us wondering what, what's going on here? Um, is it real? Are people just saying this because they want to feel good about themselves? So is it like right. a self-esteem boost? Like a protective or, factor for them kind of to like, yeah, so make them feel better about it. It's, you know, um, you've been through probably the worst thing in your life and you're desperate to find any, any silver lining yeah. just to, to make yourself feel a bit better. So you know, maybe that's an idea, but others were saying, you know, other researchers were saying, no, 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 this is real. Uh, people, you know, they, they seem to be convinced that people are um, stronger or more confident or closer to their families, whatever. 
Hmm. So uh, I spent about 20 years or so trying to figure out what what's going on there and it, not just in the context of loss but you know we we were interested in any sort of major life adversity that that kind of throws your life upside down so we did research on spinal cord patients um you know other sudden unexpected loss when i was in uh, teaching at st francis xavier university in nova scotia um it was near the uh, where the west Ray mine explosion happened mm-hmm. and so uh, a colleague and i did interviews with with family members um uh, who had lost a loved one in that mine explosion, um, looking at the same sort of things. Um, uh, uh, I had a student uh, who I worked with here at, at Carleton who was interested in, in uh, uh, tinnitus or tinnitus, as some people call it, um, which is you know, more or less a constant ringing in the ear that mm-hmm. has no known cause. And you know, she was saying, you know, I, I'm going through the same sort of thing, asking myself, why me? Why did this happen? And trying to, to understand what's happening um, in her own life. So we, we did a study looking at, you know, how this, how growth might happen in that, in that context. And right. People right. actually report it. Let's go back and actually define personal growth. What is personal growth from an academic point of view? Um, the, the people that, that measure growth um, say that, that growth is any positive change in your sense of identity or how you carry on your life that's attributable to the adversity that you went through. So whether that's a loss event or, you know, getting fired or, um, you know, breaking up with your boyfriend, girlfriend, um, you know, do you perceive that your life is different now in a, in a positive way? As a, we assume that these things happen and you feel lousy, it, it sucks to, mm-hmm. to lose a child. It's, you know, how on earth could this possibly be a positive thing? Yet um, more and more, the research is saying that, you know what, most people who go through these events say that that they have gotten something positive out of it and that's what we mean by growth so it's it's meant to be a sustained change in how you see yourself how you interact with the world how you understand the world um how what sense of purpose or direction does your life have yeah and when you're talking about this i, I think an important note is that uh just because you're experiencing post-traumatic growth or growth in, per se that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not experiencing these negative sides of this trauma right exactly yeah, I mean, some people think of growth as being the opposite of distress or or depression uh, or PTSD, and, and it's not. In fact, uh, you know, some studies actually show a positive correlation between reports of growth and, and indicators of PTSD or depressive symptoms. So it's, uh, you know, that's another confusing thing. I mean, if, if mm. people are saying, this has actually been a good, good thing for me, um, you know, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't be taking that to be a sign that, that they've got it together, they're, they're well adjusted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you can think of, you know, sort of reveling in the mi- the misery, right? That kind of idea of, of just being, I don't know. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's fascinating that you can have this sort of amazing juxtaposition between what we would, by all accounts, describe as being this overwhelmingly negative feeling, being it depression, post-traumatic stress, whatever that might be, and yet still at the end of the day say, oh, yeah, I'm actually better for that. <laughs> like I'm actually a better person because that's happened to me. It's a very yeah, that, that yeah, struck so, me too as being really, uh, you know, counterintuitive. I wouldn't have mm-hmm. anticipated that. Mm-hmm. And so with that, with that, Chris, what uh, I'm curious to just kind of talk more about postmodern growth. I've been wanting to talk about this topic for since we started this podcast. <laughs> it was a huge, it was a huge <laughs> interest of mine uh, before I got into grad school as well. I was interested in postmodern growth and your work as well. Um, and so what uh, 
who is more likely, if we can talk about just people that are experiencing post-traumatic growth, what are the kind of uh, individual differences or who's more likely to experience post-traumatic growth uh, from your experience in the, in the literature? Um, that's a good question. I, you know, we, we haven't looked so much at individual differences. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, part of it is, is uh, trying to assess, you know, going into it, we, we don't typically have data on people before they go through trauma. Right. Um, yeah. So there, there's not a lot of research that would be able to look at, you know, be, or be able to assess you before the trauma and say, okay, people who have these uh, personality traits or, or different qualities are more or less likely to, to have this. So what we do have is retrospective research. So, you know, after the trauma has happened and those people who are reporting growth, um, you know, we ask them about their personality traits on the assumption that the traits pre-exist the, the trauma. Right. Um, and, you know, that kind of research suggests that optimism is an important thing. Uh, I think there's some openness to experience uh, data that uh, showing that, that that's a significant predictor. Um, but there's not a lot. And, you know, yeah. I myself haven't really focused on on personality traits or characteristics as predictors. I'm really more interested in what's the process? What are the steps that you go through in order to uh, achieve this this growth? Yeah. And so, so to follow up on that then, Chris, is what does a, you know, I know average process is going to be kind of difficult because everybody, I imagine there's a lot of different trajectories when it comes to dealing with trauma, but uh, in your, in your work, uh, what are you seeing as kind of the, the steps that takes, because I wouldn't imagine post-traumatic growth happens right away. Um, it, it, I think it happens sooner than a lot of people imagine it would. Mm -hmm. and, and again, these are, these are perceptions of growth. We, we, yes. We're having a tough time distinguishing what's what's you know real observable growth from from a, a self-perceived growth but what we think happens is you know these traumas uh shatter your sense of, of the world being a just place ordered predictable you know you anticipate that you know you're going to live a long and productive life and things are going to generally work out for you because you're a good person and then all of a sudden these things happen and it's like wow wait a second that's mm -hmm. not supposed to happen to me uh, so the, the whole question of why me, why, why did this happen to me? Uh, of course, nobody wants it to happen to anybody else, but you know, I'm a good person. It's not, you know, these lousy things aren't supposed to happen to me. So that, that, you know, shattering of your assumptions, your fundamental beliefs or assumptions about how things work in the world or, or your own view of yourself. Um, we think that motivates the search for meaning that, that right. trying to make sense of, of your experience, given your assumptions. And so either you change how you perceive the event. You know, maybe you say, oh, it wasn't so bad, but, you know, uh, loss of a partner, loss of a child, you can't really reinterpret that as, oh, it wasn't so bad. Right. Uh, yeah. So instead, you have to change the way you see the world. And so you might say, well, I used to think that, you know, good things happen to good, pe good people, bad things happen to bad people. Um, but now I've come to realize that sometimes bad things happen to good people. Uh, so the world is not quite as predictable. It's still kind of predictable, but not quite as predictable. Or you say, you know, I can't count on myself living to a ripe old age of, you know, 85 or something. Um, sometimes people die young. So I got to change my philosophy of life and, and live for today because there may not be a tomorrow. I'm not going to put things off to the, you know, some future time. I'm going to do it now. So it's a change in how you uh, interact with the world around you. You know, if you're if you're a victim of crime, um, so you were um, uh, sexually assaulted or or um, you know, burglarized or something else, you may say, "Well, the world isn't as benevolent as I thought it was. There are some nasty people out there." 
So you can change the way you see the world to be, uh, it's, it's not a benevolent world. It's, it's, it can be, or there's potential for that, but the world isn't quite as benevolent as I thought it was. So that changing how you understand the world and how you understand yourself in the world, uh, leads to this new perspective, which, um, uh, can be the, the basis for that, that growth that we're observing. Definitely. So that's, that's one way we've done some other research with spinal cord patients. Um, and you know, the one thing about spinal cord injury is that it tends to happen more often than not to, uh, adolescent males, mm -hmm. um, uh, or young adult males who are engaging in more risky activities. So whether it's, uh, driving fast or, or skiing or motorcycling or, or, um, taking risks, playing uh, physical sports, um, so those, those tend to be the, the people most likely to get a spinal cord injury. Um, and if you're paralyzed or quadriplegic, it means you can't do all those things that made your life meaningful and exciting. So you have to yeah. redefine yourself, reinvent yourself. And so we think that part of growth is coming from figuring out new ways to get that thrill in your life, figuring out new ways to achieve the goals that are important to you. Uh, and in doing so, you uh, develop a new sense of who you are, which is what we're talking about in terms of growth. So, so we also think of, of growth as sort of redefining the important goals in your life and finding new ways to, to achieve those goals. Yeah. Chris, I'm going to take us on a momentary tangent here. <laughs> but uh, recently, I don't know if you've ever seen the show uh, Friday Night Lights. No, I haven't. Uh, I don't no, okay. Well, anyways, basic premise, and I'm not spoiling anything. <laughs> the one of the main characters in the very first episode suffers a uh, spinal injury, and so uh, the first chunk of the show is all about him, you know, and the other characters and his sort of sense of self growth and his, uh, you know, feelings as he goes through this process and relearns what it's like and and how he can kind of develop meaning and uh and sort of what you were saying was really resonating with me oh, in that context <laughs> i don't know why but for any listener out there who's seen it maybe this helps yeah puts it in context for you i think an interesting thing too chris is the, the bringing up spinal cord injury and comparing you know comparing different traumas there's definitely uh you've you mentioned that you know experiencing death of a loved one and things like that, uh, definitely huge uh, social impacts, relational impacts and trauma there. Uh, specifically with spinal cord injury, I imagine it, it touches more areas of your your life, right? Is the, the yeah, functional day to day. Life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, your sex life, your functional life, all these things are now being impacted, not just relational, right? And so you have you have to take that into account. Yeah. They, do they differ significantly in the, or is it similar in the sense that they're, they're reporting kind of similar post-traumatic growth as individuals that might, you know, have, have lost a loved one? Well, we find a lot of the same stuff um, in terms of, you know, we, we tend not to use in, in our, in my lab, we don't tend to use the, the post-traumatic growth inventory or other sort of questionnaires. I, you know, I have some questions about, or, uh, about the validity of those instruments. So we, we prefer to ask open-ended questions along the lines of, you know, have, have you gotten anything positive out of this experience? Tell right. us what you got out of this. Um, and, and so it's more free flowing and people are saying uh, what's important to them as opposed to giving them a checklist and say, you know, can you check off all the items that have changed as a result of your trauma? Um, but we do find a lot of the same sorts of things. So people are saying that they're closer to their family members. Um, they found a new direction in their life. A uh, new philosophy to live by. Um, uh, they they've learned new skills. Um, so we get 
pretty much the same things. Those mm -hmm. people who do use the post-traumatic growth inventory and other, other questionnaires, uh, there's a lot of consistency across all kinds of adversities right. uh, in the kinds of things that people report. So, you know, the fact that we're seeing it in, in essentially the same stuff in spinal cord injured individuals and, and people who are uh, dealing with, with grief suggests that it's a, it's a pretty common phenomenon. And that's interesting that you're still seeing this post-traumatic growth. And like you said, this it's not it's a unique sample most of the time on average for spinal cord injuries where they're risk takers, they're young men, are young young uh, adults, uh, and now they have a complete shift in the way that they can you know they're not able to take those risks and do the, live that lifestyle that they had before, but they're still perceiving growth. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about um, I guess it's just the past twenty years or so is this idea of wheelchair sports. And yep. one of the things they do here in Ottawa at the rehabilitation center is they, um, when, when there's new, uh, patient, spinal cord patient, uh, recently admitted who, who kind of fits that profile of young male into sports, um, they have somebody come by from the wheelchair basketball team mm -hmm. and, and says, you know, come watch us play. And it's a, it's a fairly vicious sport. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not yes. all the time. And so it's, you know, it's a way of saying you can still live, live that life of, of um, getting that thrill of, of sports. Uh, maybe it's not going to be the same sport that you played before. Maybe it's not going to be in the same way, but there's still, you know, a, this is a great outlet for, um, for your testosterone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What a competitive instinct. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, I've got a question that comes from a place of naivety. Um, but earlier you mentioned that, you know, it's perceived personal growth. Um, how do you distinguish between perceived personal growth and actual personal growth? So if you want to do so in a lab, how, how might you go about actually distinguishing those two? Um, that's another great question. Uh, I don't really have an answer for you. I mean, different <laughs> people in the literature have tried different things. I mean, when, sure. when we write about it, we try to say perceived growth all the time. Because right. we don't know if it's real or it's not real. Um, you know, some people have uh, asked the significant others of people who have gone through these events and says and said, "Has so and so changed in this way, in this way, in this other way, in this other way?" And you know, look at, at agreement between what the the uh, participant says and what his or her significant other says, uh, and the agreement tends to be pretty low. But then again, you can say, well, some things you can't really tell. Even your spouse might not tell. So if, uh, you know, if you say that you're closer to your family, your spouse may not actually have noticed that you're any closer to your family. Right. Um, <laughs> if you've you know, developed a, a new direction in your life or a new sort of philosophy, your, your spouse may not know that, uh, may not recognize that. So it's not necessarily saying we don't believe it. it doesn't, it's not real um, because we don't know if your spouse is you know, the, the gold standard. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to follow up on that, Chris, when you have uh, trauma where uh, you have a spouse or a romantic partner, your does the partner experience some form of post-traumatic growth or is it isolated to uh, the individual experiencing the trauma? Uh, I, I don't think we've looked at that yet. I don't think we've looked at um, the extent to which the, um, the, the caregiver or the, the partner of, of the mm. person going through the trauma has, right. has experienced that growth. I'm not familiar with any studies that have done that. Yeah, because I know I'm uh, sorry for asking, but it's like, uh, it reminds me of this like secondary trauma approach where you're looking at, you know, people that are affected that weren't 
directly affected by it, but are, you know, are experiencing it through others. Uh, and and I, I'm yeah, it'd be interesting to see if that, in the future where where that goes with the, with the post-traumatic growth literature. Yeah, that'd be a neat thing to look at. I mean, it's um, always hard to recruit uh, not just the, the the participant who's been through the trauma, but also also their partner, yeah, partner or a significant others. Absolutely. And I, I imagine that it would be particularly challenging if we were to sort of circle back to this idea of the relationships and, and say the ending of a relationship it might be awfully difficult to ask a former <laughs> spouse to participate in a study of that nature, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, I, so yeah, so one more follow up on that, uh, Chris, is the uh, oh crap! What was my what was my question? I had a really good question. <laughs> oh, sorry, I took it away from you with my oh, long okay. rambling. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It'll come back hopefully. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, no, I do. I do have it. It's a good one. Um, so, so when it comes to post traumatic growth, Chris, uh, is there a way to kind of you know get this out of everybody? Because uh, I imagine there's people that aren't experiencing post traumatic growth all the time, or you know, not everyone's going to experience post traumatic growth whenever there's trauma. Is there anything that's being done to kind of elicit it or promote post-traumatic growth in a way? Uh, that's kind of uh, kind of controversial, I think, uh, at least for me it is, because, mm. you know, one of the things that we found with, with uh, actually all of our studies, I think, if I can remember correctly, uh, is that there's a, you know, th this model that I described to you where people have shattered assumptions and then they search for meaning and then hopefully that meaning leads to a sense of growth, uh, that, that doesn't happen for everybody. And one of the surprising things that we found I think even back in, in that first study we did with, with Darren Lehman's uh, data, was that there's a chunk of people, a solid minority of about 20, 30% of our sample, who when we say, you know, did you ever search for meaning? They say, no. no. Mm -hmm. um, I remember doing it with the, asking that question to, to people who had lost their spouse in, in the, or, or child in the, in the West, in the West Ray mine explosion. Um, and, you know, one person in particular, I remember her saying, you know, his card was up. It was, I don't say why me or why did he die? Um, if it wasn't the explosion, it would have been a car crash. It would have been something else mm -hmm. that when your time is up, your time is up. And ours is not to question when or why. And I thought, wow, what a philosophy of life. Uh, yeah. to live by. It's sort of, you know, fate takes its, um, plays its cards and, and you just have to live with that. So, you know, she never searched for meaning. And as a result, she uh, reported no growth. Um, when we asked, you know, have you changed? It was, no, not really. Um, get anything good out of this? No, not really. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea is if you don't take on that process, then you're not going to experience growth. Now, right. what's controversial about that is to say, well, should we get people to search for meaning? Yeah. And they wouldn't otherwise do it. Um, what we do know is that the more you're searching for meaning, the more lousy you say your life is right now. So, you know, if you search for meaning unsuccessfully, you don't find a sense of meaning, you're, you're in pretty bad shape, uh, our, our research suggests. Um, moreover, those people who say, yeah, I found some meaning, they often keep on searching. So it's not as if, you know, you close the book once you say, okay, I searched for meaning, I found it, done. Uh, you, for many yeah. of those people, they keep on searching. So. You know, the, the most consistent finding that we've had is that those people who are searching still, even years later, are still more distressed. Right. So getting people to search for meaning on the hope that they'll get some growth out of it is sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it may lead to growth, but on the other hand, it's going to perhaps increase distress. Right. So and that's the tricky thing about encouraging growth, at least if that's if that's the right process, if, if that sort of searching for meaning is, is a 
critical piece of that puzzle. Right. Is it that's that's really interesting. I never really thought of it that way because the 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 individual you used in an example, she may not, uh, you know, she may not be as distressed because she didn't ever treat it as needing to grow from it. Exactly. Uh, They're actually doing really well. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's where that's kind of the, the paradox is there where it's like growth could be good for people that are under distress, but if they're not as distressed, then it might be bad. I've never really, I've never knew, I never knew that. It was really interesting. Chris, do you know if there's a relationship between individuals who are um, experiencing some sort of personal growth or, or personal tragedy um, and whether they experience more personal growth as a result of social influence, those around them? Um, can I guess what I'm asking is, can others actually push somebody into a state where they experience personal growth after uh, some sort of traumatic incident? Um, it's hard to know. I mean, we're, we're all social beings, right? Nobody's sort of, you know, a lot of these adversities mm-hmm. that we've studied um, affect the whole family. Um, so I'll go back to that, that Westray mine explosion study where, you know, we, we were talking to family members. There's uh, 26 men who died in that in that explosion, and so if we wanted a de- decent sample size, we had to recruit more than one person per family. And so, yeah, that makes the data not quite independent, uh, each case independent from every other case. But we try to take that into account in our uh, in our in our analyses. Um, but you know, one if one family member is, is interpreting it one way, uh, we were interested. Does this mean that the other family members follow? So we actually wrote a paper where we looked at the meanings that people came up with in response to that adversity and how similar they were in the kind of qualitative statements about what they got out of this, positive and negative, uh, with, their, with their family members. So we, we had to invent a new statistic uh, to look at uh, you know, the extent to which your profile and all these different types of meaning was, as, was similar to others in your family compared to you know, everybody else outside of your family. Right. Uh, and there, there was some degree of you know family resemblance and the kinds of things people said, but it wasn't certainly wasn't overwhelming. Um, but the other neat thing about that particular event is that the families all got together. So the you know the twenty six families uh, they formed the Westray Families Group, and mm-hmm. they were uh, it was a, a initially a, a group intended to share information. Um, and it became much more of something like a support group. So, you know, new friendships were formed um, among family members across families. Um, they became an advocacy group. They they uh, uh, worked to change law. There's there's a um, a new uh, well not new anymore, but they they were behind a, a law that was passed in Canadian Parliament that uh, is called the Westray bill, at least it was at the time, now I guess it's the Westray law, but the, the whole idea of that law is that, that corporate management uh, is responsible, criminally responsible for, the, uh, for any uh, injuries that happen or loss of life that happens in the workplace. Wow. So, you know, just because you're, you know, CEO of a company or, uh, you know, senior manager doesn't mean you're not criminally liable if, if your employees, those under you, are seriously injured or killed in a, in a workplace accident. So that that was advocacy that they took on. So you know the fact that they're all communicating one with another makes their data again kind of mutually dependent uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in a statistical sense. So there were really no strictly independent cases in, in our. Study. <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah. that's you know the, the whole idea of of people sharing ideas and sharing interpretations. Um, some people will accept the ideas that are coming from others. So, you know, one 
person saying the other to the other person how they made sense of it, that might be helpful. Um, but it may also be be rejected. Mm. I think that's a really great example of like uh, just searching out new communities whenever it comes to trauma, right? Like I think that's a common thing for yeah. individuals to do. Yeah. 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 People often turn to others who have been through the experience for advice. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. The idea mm-hmm. that, that, you know, you can't tell me how I'm feeling unless you've been, or you can't understand how I'm feeling unless you've been through it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I think of like uh, cancer patients and, and individuals like that that are looking at those support groups. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great, I mean, that's growth in, in essence, right? Or looking out new, connecting with new people. And I think that's what you're talking about, like uh, improving your connections with others is a, is a big part of that. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that, at least from what I've read of your work, that positive events can also have sort of these similar personal growth outcomes. Is that the case or what's going on there? Like what happens when, um, when something positive happens to somebody? So rather than always being dire, <laughs> what happens when something good oh, um, occurs? Well, I guess you're referring to the study that we did with, um, with first time expectant mothers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, again, I had a, this was a PhD student who came to me and said, I've got this idea. Um, she'd read about my, uh, the research on, on trauma and, and loss. And she said, but, you know, I don't want to do a study on, this was her dissertation, I don't want to do a study on, on trauma in that sense, but um, I want to do a study on, on uh, how having a child changes your life. Mm. And this was an a, a older student. She had uh, teenage kids at this point. Uh, and she, you know, her point was that, you know, so many people come into uh, pregnancy assuming that they're going to be great parents. I mean, I thought so myself. <laughs> and then this thing comes along and, and totally wrecks what you thought was going to destroys your sense of, of, you know, the kind of parent you thought you were going to be. Yeah. It doesn't always work out that way, but, but you know, <laughs> often enough that you think you're, you're prepared for this and you're totally unprepared. And so, yeah, her idea was to, to look at these first time expectant moms and, and her particular interest was in the, uh, the, the visions that they are, or the, the way they saw themselves in the future as a new mom. And we focused on moms uh, just for, for simplicity. So again, it doesn't complicate having you know, partners or sometimes people didn't have a partner or right. whatever. So we focused on moms. And, and so we asked them a bunch of questions about, you know, when, when you're, you know, imagine this is when in the third trimester, um, what's life going to be like when your, your baby's born? And we asked a whole bunch of questions. You know, do you imagine yourself, um, you know, being this great mom, uh, taking your kid to all these fun mom and tot things, um, you know, cuddling with your beautiful baby. Um, and at the same time, we asked them, you know, do you ever think about the lack of sleep you're going to have? Do you think about the possibility that your child isn't going to be perfect? Do you think about the possibility that it's, you're not going to see your friends anymore? Um, all these, you know, less than desirable. Things. <laughs> you know, we thought get me excited, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember all these shitty outcomes that you haven't been thinking about? Oh yeah, think about those for a minute. Yeah. But you know, so so there's a lot of people in our sample um, who you know just focused on the positive things. Yes, right. they didn't consider mm-hmm. the negative possibilities, and and we called them you know positively oriented or or sort of optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a few that were saying, yeah, it's just going to be shit. It's going to be hell. And, and they were the negative. <laughs> not too many of those. Um, 
And, and there were a few people who said, oh, I'm just not even thinking about the future at this point. Right. But there's another group that we called realistic in the sense that they had a balance of positive and negative things. So they thought through all the positive possibilities or a lot of them and a lot of the negative possibilities as well. And the idea was that, that if you're just focused on positive, you're setting yourself up for a big shock. Yeah. Um, and so when we followed up with these moms after their baby was born, and said, so how's it going? Um, those, those who were positively oriented or optimistic, um, if everything was fine, they were doing great. No, no challenges. But if there was something that didn't go well, if there's certain, we asked them, you know, did anything not go as you expected? And if they said, yes, you know, breastfeeding was more difficult than I thought, or you know, whatever, there's a bunch of different things that they might've said. Uh, and, and when we asked, so, you know, using depression inventories, you know, how, how's your life? Um, it wasn't going so well for these people. Mm. On the other hand, those who were what we called realistic, those that had positive and ne negative anticipations about life with baby, uh, when the unpleasant or unexpected things happened, they were ready and they were adjusting just fine. Thank you very much. They were getting along <laughs> just fine. So, yeah. you know, yeah, we, we think of childbirth as being a really positive time, but it carries a lot of challenges that people aren't anticipating. And that's why we did first time expectant mothers. Right. As opposed to, we figured, you know, by the time you had your second child, you know, um, but you know, the first time moms, and, and again, I'm not a mom, obviously, but I, as a dad, I remember when my first child was born, well, when my wife at the time was pregnant, um, you know, we were both thinking, we're going to be great parents. People <laughs> would tell us, well, you got to watch out for this. And we're like, nah, we're, we got that. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. You guys fell into optimistic uh, category. Exactly. exactly. And, then, and then this kid was born and... Uh, Raise yeah, hell. Really <laughs> <laughs> well, hell yeah. yeah. No, I find it. I found it really interesting, uh, Chris. My my wife works with um, expectant mothers, and and so kind of having this this kind of basis, this knowledge is is interesting for me because I can see uh, the application in the real world um, and why it would be important to to kind of be realistic about things going forward. Yeah, I mean, it really it really surprises me that, um, and again, this is from personal experience that. You know, people can tell you what you're going to anticipate, what to anticipate, and until it happens to you, it, it really, you, you just tend to dismiss it. So, you know, being able to, for, for your, your partner, being able to tell these expectant moms and dads that this is what life is going to be like. I, I'm guessing that most of them are just saying, no, no, not me, not me. <laughs> and then it happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, it's interesting to have that, uh, you know, personal report that you, you're doing this on your own, you're thinking of it uh of these things already for the realistic uh sample that you're talking about you know they're all they're aware of it on their own not being told these things and uh it's funny how we can be told a million things and never really translate it to our own behaviors and our own thoughts <laughs> uh so let's do you want to jump into a little bit of the secrets uh research that you guys are working on if, if you're okay talking with the the paper and the work that you've been doing on that let's not keep this information a secret anymore let's uh, let's talk about it uh, <laughs> let's shed some light on this issue here chris bring it out into the open <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No more white lies. Yeah. So, so what? So, what are you doing on secrets? So I'm just interested. I've never heard of this line of research, so I'm interested in how you got there and what you're kind of, what what you're getting at. Okay, sure. Um, well, I, I I first got interested in in the study of secrets. Um, you know, having a dinner conversation with a with a colleague at uh, at this at this conference. And, you know, he's telling me about his research on, on what he calls self-concealment. 
and uh, you know the idea of self-concealment. You know, this this guy is a, a clinical psychologist, um, and the idea of self-concealment is that some people, as a sort of individual difference, uh, tend to keep a lot of things private to themselves. They don't want to talk about things about themselves, um, and he sees this in in a sort of therapeutic session that some people, you know, will say everything. Others will, you've got to really drag it out of them to get information. They just don't want to uh, talk about themselves. And so he's, you know, he developed a measure of, of self-concealment and, and, and he shows that, you know, in a, in a bunch of studies that it's uh, correlated with um, uh, anxious or avoidant attachment styles. So the more you are uh, anxiously attached or avoidantly attached, um, the more you also tend to self-conceal. Um, it's correlated with with depression and anxiety and and feeling low levels of authenticity um, a whole bunch of different variables that that are you know important for for well-being um, and he says you know his his idea is that that what this comes out of is an inner conflict a psychological conflict between the motivation to reveal i want to tell my secrets i want to tell things about my personal life to my significant other or my therapist, but also um, a, a sort of a desire to suppress it. You know, you're afraid of rejection. You're afraid that that's, this person won't love you anymore or want to be your therapist anymore mm. or, or whatever. And so this, this conflict is, he says, in his view, is, is psychologically draining. Um, and, and this takes, this takes away from your, your mental health. Um, so that's, that's one model. There's another model that uh, Dan Wagner and uh, one of his students came up with, uh, actually a couple of years earlier, I think, than that. This is uh, late 80s, I think. Um, and, it, and it has to do with uh, his ironic process of, of mental control, where he's saying that the more you try to um, suppress a thought, so don't think about a white bear is his sort of classic yeah. example. The more you try not to think about something, the more uh, available it is in your mind, and the more accessible it is. And so secret works kind of like the same way that you don't want to reveal this secret, but the more you try to suppress it, the more it comes right back at you. And so it becomes a, something that's, that's always on your mind. Right. Um, so what we were interested in doing is, is to see is, are, there, are there other things that explain why some people um, are debilitated by their secrets or have poor health because of their secrets, uh, whereas others do not. So you know, we know that there's this correlation between self-concealment or between secret keeping and ill health. Um, but it's not an especially strong correlation. And, uh, you know, some people, um, are showing that, that on average, most of us carry around about a dozen secrets at any given time. Huh. And so why aren't we all messed up? Why aren't we all, uh, cr uh chronically thinking about these secrets? Cause I don't think <laughs> we are chronically thinking about these secrets. It just, it comes and it goes. Mm. Um, and so some secrets we think might be more debilitating or more likely to, elicit this sort of need to suppress and having popping back into your head um, then then us so, so some secrets have that quality others don't and so we came up with this idea that um, uh, that that some people or for some secrets there's a greater fear of discovery and fear of discovery is the the fear that that the person from whom you're keeping the secret say your your spouse um, uh, should they discover that secret this would be absolutely horrible so you right. have this constant fear, well, we think it's a fairly constant fear, that, that your secret is going to be discovered. And whether that secret is um, that you're keeping from your, your spouse is, you know, maybe it's a gambling problem, 
um, an addiction to some substance, or maybe you're having an affair, um, right. whatever it is that that's, or maybe it's something from your childhood, mm-hmm. um, you know, an embarrassing family secret that you don't want to share with anybody. So, um, the, we say the more you fear discovery of that secret, um, that's, what's going to be debilitating because that fear is, is chronic. It's not going to go away. Um, yeah. And so that's, it's sort of adding to, it's making this secret more, uh, more difficult to suppress than some other secrets. Right. And, it, you know, that may be partly, you know, there's, I'm sure there's individual differences going on there. So there are some people uh, who are, you know, more easily fearful that their secret's going to be uh, revealed. And there are some secrets that we hold that, that might be more, uh, more likely to elicit this fear of discovery than, than other secrets. Right, and that may be a function of the severity of the secret, in the sense that, yeah, you know, my spouse say. is going to kill me if she finds out. <laughs> yeah, or it could be, we think there are clues to our secret. So you know, the lipstick on the collar, <laughs> that we have to be vigilant. You know that you know she's going to find this one day. I have to, you know, I have to watch my step all the time. Watch what right. I say. Interesting. So with what the, I, I just think. Uh, when you're talking about this, I'm thinking there's like these different levels of secrets, right? That you're kind of getting at. And, and I think that plays a part into you know, how worried somebody is about getting that secret, that secret being known. Um, the, the examples you used, I would consider to be very high level, like a uh, high threat level <laughs> secrets here. Um, <laughs> things like affairs, things like, you know, gambling, addiction, abuse, uh, whatever, substance abuse, things like that. Um, what about those kind of mid-level uh like and lower level secrets do, do you would you expect those kind of like uh responses or do you think it's just going to be a little bit lower of an impact on them in the end if, if you're keeping like you know secrets from somebody about you know not moving out uh the date that you moved or you know or your birthday is a different day or something like that <laughs> well, you know we um um it you know it's there's all kinds of i mean it, coming up with levels of secret is a, is a really tricky thing and yeah um, you know, one of the, th- you, know, we, you can talk about major secrets versus minor secrets. Um, what we've done in our studies, and we're using uh, MTurk samples. So these, these are people who are filling out questionnaires for a buck or two on, on uh, Amazon's website. Yeah. And, you know, we, we recruit people who are A, in a significant relationship. So more than a couple months that you're you know, serious in a relationship. Um, and that you, that you have a secret that you're keeping from this person. Oh, okay. And so, you know, if you're keeping the secret of, something that's trivial, you're probably not going to volunteer for this study. And so we're not probably getting many people for whom that secret is kind of trivial. Yeah. Uh, so it's, and, and when we ask people uh, to, we don't ask for the details of the secret, but we give a whole bunch of categories. So, you know, one of the categories is infidelity and others that you have a secret crush um, or that the secret involves uh, some, uh, financial issue or something that happened in your childhood or, or, you know, some criminal activity. So a whole bunch of different categories and they can just check off as many of those categories as they want to check off. Right. And when we compare, um, in terms of how much people fear discovery of that particular secret or how preoccupied they are with that particular secret, we, we find almost nothing, no group differences really uh, with, with one exception. And that is uh, addiction seems to come out. So people who report that their secret is is concerning an addiction are more likely to uh, fear discovery than than um, those who don't report that category of secret. But you know, I had anticipated that that things like you know infidelity would would be 
something that would really stick out. Um, yeah, more yeah. relational like uh, secrets, right? That it would impact mm-hmm. the relationship. Yeah, um, and again, these are secrets that they're keeping from their significant other, so their, their partner. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'd expected that 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 would be you know one that they'd really fear discovery on, but but no. Um, and it, so, it, in general, you know, except for that addiction uh, category. Um, None of these are more likely or less likely to be preoccupying, to fear discovery of. Uh, so that's that's kind of a surprising thing. But it's also saying that, you know, all of these secrets that, that people are reporting on um, are important to them. And, yeah. you know, you can ask, uh, we, we haven't asked, but I mean, if, if we asked, you know, on a 10 point scale from, you know, not at all important to totally important. Uh, how how important the secret is to you? I'm sure, you know, the means would be pretty high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome, Chris. Thanks so much for being uh, part of the program today. We've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, the floor is yours. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? Or is there anybody that you'd like to say hello to? Um, the mic's all yours now, so go for it. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. This has been fun. Um, my first podcast so it's been enjoyable uh, well hopefully you'll be back so it won't be your last one. <laughs> oh, cool that'll be good okay yeah um, yeah if they want to reach me my email is chris.davis at carlton.ca uh happy to uh, answer any further questions or or send copies of papers to anybody who's interested thank you Amazing. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. Um, so as Chris said, uh, you can reach him at the uh, Carleton University website. However, as you know, we will have his picture and his bio information all available on brainbuzzpodcast.com, where not only can you listen to this episode, but we'll include uh, a couple of references uh, to papers that we've discussed or papers that might be particularly pertinent and relevant to our conversation today. Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode, uh, please leave us a review, leave us a star or two, let us know what you've liked, let us know what you'd like us to do a bit differently. Uh, We're always open to new ideas, new opportunities, and a little personal growth. Right, Drake? A little personal growth can't hurt. (laughs) Never hurt anybody. (laughs) Awesome. Well, uh, with all that said, Chris, once again, just thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And uh, until next time, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.